Well, thank you guys for letting me be here again. Um, it is a real privilege and honor, and, and I really mean that. I think um, having worked closely with my own pastors in the past, having been in church leadership in the past, I know the amount of trust that church leaders need to have to invite someone in and just actually say, yeah, just preach whatever is on your heart, bring whatever God gives you. Um, so it really is an, an honor and a privilege um, the way you guys have just welcomed and been so open, so thank you. Um, I, uh, as Martin mentioned, um, I work with 24-7 Prayer, which is a global movement of prayer mission and justice. For the sake of time, I'm not really going to say much about that. If you want to know more about who we are and what we do, um, I'm happy to chat after. Um, but I really just want to get stuck in this morning um, of what I feel like God gave me to bring to you guys. Um, so the last time I was here was the start of September. Um, and I talked then about prayer being first and foremost a place of intimate relationship with God. That before we make it something transactional, um, that it's about being with God. It's coming home into the heart of God. It's loving him, knowing we are loved by him. It's about time spent with him. Time that in our present culture and society we see as precious, um, and it's taking that time that we hold so dear and wasting it on God um, for love of him. Um, and we looked at the story of Mary of Bethany breaking the alabaster, the, the pure nard oil over Jesus, her entire inheritance. Um, as a waste uh, out of love for him and comparing that with the time that we give him in prayer and worship. Um, so yesterday, um, there was a few of us uh, that met out in a beautiful location. Um, I tried very hard to focus on teaching and not be distracted by the beauty around me. Um, but we spent some time looking at um, prayer in just some practical ways, rhythms, methods, and tools um, in prayer to deepen our personal prayer lives, to get to know God better, um, to experience more of his transformation within us. Um, this morning, we're going to look at prayer as partnership with God. Um, and in Luke 11, Jesus teaches us how to pray. The disciples ask him to teach them how to pray. And the prayer he gives us is the prayer that we just prayed a few minutes ago. What we know as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I feel like that bit where he says, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is his invitation to us through prayer to partner with him in seeing his kingdom established on this earth. And we don't really fully realize it when we read it in Luke 11, 
But when we read about the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, we realize that the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches us how to pray, sits within the Sermon on the Mount. It sits within Jesus teaching and expounding on what the kingdom of God looks like. And he's talking about a kingdom that people are struggling to understand because their concept of a kingdom has to do with getting rid of their persecutors and having um, political freedom and having national freedom. And, and Jesus is talking about a, a kingdom that, that has to do with forgiving our enemies rather than doing away with them. It has to do with justice that doesn't look like retribution, but looks like restoration. He talks about this upside down kingdom um, where behavior is not nearly as important to God as our heart motivations and our thought lives. He's talking about a kingdom whose standards are absolutely impossible for us to live up to without the help of God himself. And it's in this that Jesus says, pray like this, your kingdom come. This is the kind of kingdom I want you to pray into my world. And what I love about Luke 11 is that after they're hearing about God's kingdom and they're thinking, how do we live like this? These are standards beyond us. Jesus says, when you ask, I will give you the Holy Spirit to help you. In John 15, 15, in the message version, Jesus says, I'm no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand what their master is thinking and planning. No, I've named you friends because I've let you in on everything I've heard from the Father. Partnership, friendship. This was always God's intention for us. We read in Genesis 2, and those of you that were there yesterday will remember us talking a little bit about the, these verses from Genesis 2. But it says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. God immediately involves man, humanity, in his creation. And, and something that, that Jewish culture understands about naming, um, names are important. It, it's not just giving your child a nice name. It, that name has to do with their, their nature, their personality, their destiny. And so in some ways, when God gives humanity the responsibility of naming the animals, he's, he, you know, it's not just Adam standing there going, oh, well, I think that looks like a, a lion. Sure, what, we'll call it a lion. I think Adam is actually saying, I call you lion, 
and this is what you're going to be because I call you lion. Um, so there's this beautiful partnership in the very beginning of creation between God and humanity. And I think there is a particular power that is unlocked when we, as God's people, come together to partner with him in the place of prayer. The first Christians in the New Testament regularly prayed together. And it's been marked throughout church life ever since then. It's been a part of who we are as the church ever since. In Acts 4.31, they pray. And when they pray, the room in which they're in shakes because of the power of God's presence. In Acts 12, Peter is miraculously released out of prison while a group of the church are gathered in someone's home praying earnestly for his protection and his deliverance. Um, It's been part of the church from the beginning. And the thing is, is the church was responding to something that Jesus taught the disciples, that wherever two or more of them gathered in his name and sought him, he would answer. He would be there with them, and he would answer. And so their prayer as a church, their prayer lives as a church, is has become instinctively responsive to that promise from Jesus. In just before the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, one of our friends in 24-7 prayer, Marcus Lagel, he would have been a a young boy, um, and he remembers, because his parents were Christians, and He remembers um, one of the the churches that was right up against the wall. He remembers thousands of people gathering in this church to pray for freedom, to pray for an end to oppression, to pray that they might be reunited with their friends and family on the other side of the wall. And um, it started with just a small group meeting and praying in this church. And it grew and grew and grew until one evening there was, they, they knew there were going to be thousands gathering um, to pray. And um, the military were ready. They, they had sniper rifles ready. They, they thought there's going to be riots. But there wasn't. And they prayed through the night. And a few days later, the Berlin Wall fell. Was that coincidence? I don't think so. When the press interviewed one of the military officers, he said, we were prepared for every eventuality. We were prepared for violence, for riots, for chaos. What we weren't prepared for was for candles and for prayer. My friends up in Orkney um, a few years ago, um, a young woman by the name of Ruth She had um, had some experience with 24-7 prayer rooms um, because she worked at uh, a church where my colleague Debbie was, and Debbie has um, this really 
unique way of getting people involved in whatever she has responsibility for. So she had involved Ruth in helping her set up a few different 24-7 prayer rooms and organize a few different 24-7 prayer weeks. And when Ruth returned to Orkney, she had been there, I'm I'm not sure, maybe a couple of years, and um, she had become aware that um, on the news, they had been talking about just an increased amount of suicides, specifically amongst young adults. And um, she was kind of vaguely aware of this. And then one of her own friends from high school days committed suicide. And, and Ruth suddenly went, no, this isn't okay with me. The, this is not going to be the story of Orkney. This is not going to be our narrative. And so she um, got together with another pastor in, the, in, the, in Kirkwall who also had a heart for prayer, and they organized a 24-7 prayer week amongst three of the churches in the area um, specifically to pray for life in Orkney, that there would be an end to death like in this way. And um, so they did this 24-7 prayer week. It went far better than they expected. They kind of wondered, you know, it's kind of nuts. We've never done this before, trying to get three churches together. Um, but it was, it was incredible. And um, it was such an, an amazing week, and God did so much. Ruth kind of almost forgot about the whole reason they were gathering to pray anyway. And about six months later, she thought, oh, we, we prayed about the whole suicide thing. What has anything come of that? And um, she just so happened to read a paper that talked about how um, there had been such concern about this um, increase of suicides happening so often within a short amount of time. And they were just remarking that it just seemed um, quite interesting that in the past about five months, there hadn't been any. And they, and they were just saying, what, what was that about? You know, like, like so many within a short period of time and then all of a sudden, there's none. And Ruth was just like, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the revivalist preacher of the Hebridean revivals, Duncan Campbell said, show me a people on their faces before God, gripped in the unction of prayer, and I show you a people ready for revival. Charles Fenney was described as a revivalist in the US in the 1800s. He had a radical encounter with Jesus in his early 20s. He was a lawyer and ended up becoming this great preacher. Um, Also, uh, maybe a little bit lesser known, but he was an abolitionist. He controversially allowed women to pray out loud in his prayer meetings, which at that time was, you know, (laughs) A little bit controversial. Um, They would turn over in their graves now if they saw me. Um, (laughs) um, He was also president of Oberlin College, which was one of the first colleges in the U.S. um, to allow people of color and women to be uh, co-educated alongside white men. Um, So he was quite, quite a character. And at the start of his ministry, 
or from kind of the start of his ministry, um, Finney was, he really believed in prayer as the precursor to revival. And he pointed out that Jesus gave the apostles instructions that led them to wait on the Holy Spirit's arrival. He called this the divine cause and effect that we see come to fruition in Acts 2. He talked about how the move of God, his salvation, community transformation, all that stuff we long to see happen in our communities. That it's not something God likes to do alone without human involvement. That God designed his kingdom so that we could take part in his intervention and redemption. And he speculated about what would have happened if those first apostles had decided that they should just do nothing for fear of taking things out of God's sovereign hands. What if they hadn't gathered in the upper room to pray? What would have happened? Would it, would it have been a slightly different story? You know, we're, we're coming up in a few weeks to Pentecost. If they hadn't met in that upper room and waited following Jesus' instructions, would we have Pentecost as the church? Would there be a church? Because what followed them waiting in the upper room in prayer and the coming of the Holy Spirit was the birth of the church. And I kind of wonder how many times have there been invitations from God extended to us today as the church to wait on him that we've missed or we've ignored because we're too busy or we've only given a short amount of time to. And in Acts 1, Jesus commissions the disciples to carry on his work and tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit who will enable them to do what he has called them to do because partnering with God in prayer also looks like being his witnesses. Partnering with God will ultimately, yes, it might begin in the place of prayer, but it will result in looking like us being his witnesses. And praying for his kingdom to come on this earth, if those prayers that we pray are truly gonna be effective, then we need to pray with an understanding of what his kingdom looks like and be ready to live out and flesh out his kingdom on this earth. It's not just prayer. It's prayer with the way we live our lives. It's prayer, mission, and justice. This is why it's important that we understand what God's kingdom looks like, the way that Jesus unpacks it for us in Matthew. Corey Tin Boone said, we never know how God will answer our prayers, but we can expect that he will get us involved in the answer. If we are true intercessors, we must be ready to take part 
when God's work on behalf of the people for whom we pray. In Matthew 9, verse 35 through 10, verse 1, in the message version, it says, Then Jesus made a circuit of all the towns and villages. He taught in their meeting places, reported kingdom news, and healed their diseased bodies, healed their bruised and hurt lives. When he looked out over the crowds, his heart broke. So confused and aimless they were, like sheep with no shepherd. What a huge harvest, he said to his disciples. How few workers on your knees and pray for harvest hands. The prayer was no sooner prayed than it was answered. Jesus called 12 of his followers and sent them into the right fields. He gave them power to kick out evil spirits and to tenderly care for the bruised and hurt lives. The prayer was no sooner answered was no sooner prayed than it was answered. Jesus called 12 of his followers and sent them into the right fields. He says, get on your knees, pray, now go. Be the answer to your own prayers. In Acts 4, Peter and John in the new church are being threatened, being told, stop talking about Jesus, you know, or we're going to throw you in prison what is their response? They gather together in prayer. And what do they pray for? Do they pray for deliverance? Do they pray that God would silence their persecutors? No. They say, God, give us boldness so that out of fear we don't stop preaching your word. Give us boldness. Give us courage. And in Acts 4.31, it says, while they were praying, the place where they were meeting trembled and shook. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak God's word with fearless confidence. This is partnership with God, to be filled with his spirit and to carry his spirit and his presence into every area of our lives. This, I wasn't going to talk about this today, and just when we were praying right before the service, I felt like I was supposed to. So it might take up some of the time that I was going to give to other things, but that's okay. <laughs> In the first few chapters of Joshua, I'm sure most of you will know the story. Moses is dead. God is telling Joshua it's time to lead these people across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. They're right there. They're, they can see the Promised Land. They've been wandering around in the desert for 40 years, and finally, they're right there. And God says, okay, Joshua, it's time. Take them in. Now, on one hand, <laughs> Joshua could have been going, really? <laughs> this is really not good timing. <laughs> Moses just died. For, a lot, for, I would say, the majority of the people of Israel, Moses is the only leader they've ever known. When you read through their story, you realize that by this point, most of the people who started out on this 40-year journey are gone. It's a whole new generation. They've only known Moses as their leader, and now he's gone. Joshua is young, 
unproven. He's led them in battle. But it's one thing to lead people into battle, but actually lead an entire nation. And the Bible says that um, the Jordan River was in flood. Now, we would say, it's a river. Come on, you, got, you guys crossed an entire sea. You know, God, God split the sea for you. What, what's the deal with a river? Well, normally it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But it's in flood. It's the rainy season in the mountains. They, they're not talking about just warriors crossing the Jordan River. They're talking about families, children, livestock, wagons filled with their belongings have to get across this rushing, raging river. Not possible. Definitely not possible to do it safely. So you can imagine Joshua's going, really, God? <laughs> this does not seem like a, the best time. You know, like, could we just wait? Just, just wait until the rainy season's over. Things start to get a bit drier. <laughs> um, but God says, no, time. It's the time is now. But here's, here's the thing as well. When they crossed the Red Sea, they had no option. It was either be destroyed by Pharaoh's army that was pursuing them, or God had to do a miracle. There was no other option. This time they have an option. They don't have to go into the promised land. They can stay where they are, where it's a little bit more comfortable, where it's a little bit safer, where it's not as risky, because there's still giants in the land. So we, even if they get across the Jordan without drowning, they still have to face giants and fight giants. Not, not just any normal enemy, giants. <laughs> and, and then on top of that, some of them have said to Joshua, actually, we quite like it on this side of the river, so we'd like to stay here. You know? And so... That, that means part of their army, part of their warriors may not be with them on the other side, making them even more vulnerable. They don't have to go into the promised land and face the Jordan River and flood giants. But it's the promised land. It's their destiny. They could settle or they could go after the fullness of everything that God has for them. It's their choice. But God's not going to do it for them this time. This time, they have to get their feet wet. They have to take a step. And then God will come through. And I find it interesting how Joshua prepares them for this. Two things happen in those first uh, two or three chapters of Joshua as they get ready to go into the promised land. Prayer and fasting. He calls them together to pray and fast together. And the other thing he says it, to the people who want to settle on this side, that's fine. You can settle on this side, but we're going in together. You're going to fight with your brothers and sisters, and we're going to do this together, and then you can come back. Prayer 
and unity. That's how he prepares them to take the promised land. And you guys know the rest of the story. There's a group of people, I would have mentioned them to some of you guys uh, yesterday, known as the Moravians. Um, And they were essentially a group of people that lived during the uh, 1700s, and they were religious refugees, um, and they uh, were invited to settle on the estate of this Christian count named Zinzendorf. And um, you would think, okay, all these Christian religious refugees, they, they settle on this estate, Zinzendorf was kind of thinking, oh, it's going to be a bit of a Christian utopia. This is going to be great, you know. And uh, it it wasn't. (laughs) Um, Some of them were Catholic. Some of them were Protestant. Some of them were upper class. Some of them were lower class. It was was not nice at first. (laughs) There there was a lot of of tension, a lot of strife, um, not a lot of love. And... um, Zinzendorf prayed, and God moved in their midst and broke their hearts, and um, they began to live in love and in unity with one another. They um, really, this, this happened in a place of prayers. They came together in the place of prayer. God did something in their hearts. The result of that is that they prayed 24-7, 365 for 100 years. Obviously, not all of them all the time. (laughs) Um, They they were farmers. (laughs) They had work to do. Um, But the greatest missions movement in the history of the church came out of this little, tiny, sleepy, northeast Germany village. Um. And it it started when two of the young men in the community, um, in the place of prayer, their hearts broke for a people group that they heard about that were being taken as slaves to work a plantation on an island. And the thought that these people would never get to meet Jesus broke their hearts. Um, And so they went to the slave owners and they said, can we come share the gospel with your slaves and maybe plant a church. And the slave owner was like, no way, no. Like, that'll interfere with the work, it'll slow things down. So they went back home, really despondent. Come on, God, we've, what was that about? We felt like you, this is what you told us to do. And then they, they knew what they had to do, and they, they went back to the slave owners, and they said... If we give ourselves to you as slaves, will you promise to not interfere when we share the gospel with our fellow slaves? He looked at these two young, strong German farmers. Yeah, (laughs) you can talk about whatever God you like, you know, just do good work. And when they were saying goodbye to their friends and family, and you have to understand it this time, there wasn't really much of a missions movement yet. The only idea of missions that they had was what they read in the New Testament. And so their friends and family are like, really? (laughs) Does it have to be like this? We're we're most likely never going to see you again. Why? 
Why is this so important? And um, the way that one of the young men responded became the battle cry of the Moravian church. And he said, because worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive the due and just reward of his suffering. Ultimately, it wasn't about the slaves. It was about Jesus receiving the reward that he died for. And something that I, I've come to realize over the years is that um, to partner with God means that what is close to his heart becomes close to our hearts. And what Jesus prays for becomes important to us to pray for. And there's something that Jesus prayed for the night before he was betrayed. And I think he's still not seen the answer to that prayer. And he's still praying that prayer. And, and that prayer is the prayer that he prays in John 17, where he says, Father, make them one. May they love one another the way you and I love one another. Would they be one so that the world can see that you sent me, so that the world can see who I really am, who you really are? Make them one. Make them love one another. You know, something that was amazing about the Moravians, um, as more and more missionaries went out, there's this incredible story where there's a group of Moravians on a ship um, bound for North America. And um, there's other, another group of Christians on the ship as well. And it's, it's a rough, they have rough seas, people are sick, rations are getting low. And there's another young man on that ship watching the scene playing out before him, and that young man's name is John Wesley. John Wesley didn't know Jesus yet, but he watched the Moravians, and he watched this other group of Christians, and he watched this other group of Christians fight and be selfish and fight over food and hoard food and, and, and just, oh, it was, not, it was not nice. But the Moravians gave up their food and gave it to the other Christians. They sang worship in the middle of storms when everyone else thought they were going to die. Such joy, such love, such unity displayed. And eventually, it was what he saw there that eventually led John Wesley to have that incredible encounter with Jesus where he talks about his heart being strangely warmed. And we know what came after that. They will know who you are, Father. They will know who I am by their love for one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that in corporate prayer offered in the name of Christ, this is the purest form of fellowship. Johannes Hartel, who leads a massive house of prayer in Germany, talks in his book, Heartfire, about how he's been seeing prayer movements across 
the nations and denominations increasingly becoming characterized by a desire to not just pray, but to pray together across denominations as one body, as one people of God. And um, I just want to read what Johannes says here. He says, I no longer see it as a coincidence because when you pray, what Jesus prayed for becomes important to you. And this was his prayer request the night before he died, that all of them may be one. If God increasingly calls his church back to prayer, it will also be a call that we pray in unity, and a unity that does not trivialize differences, rather one that respects differences whilst meeting in that which unites us all. Charles Finney said, nothing tends more to cement the hearts of Christians than praying together. Never do they love one another so well as when they witness the outpouring of each other's hearts in prayer. Their spirituality begets a feeling of union and confidence highly important to the prosperity of the church. It is doubtful whether Christians can ever be otherwise than united if they are in the habit of really praying together. And where they have had hard feelings and differences among themselves, they are all done away by uniting in prayer. And Johannes and Finney are not talking about a unity that means that we all look and sound the same. But it's a unity that reflects the fullness of who God is, like Jesus talks about in John 17. In Ephesians 3, it talks about how the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the world through the church. And that word manifold um, is a word poikolos, which means wrought in various colors. It's, It's almost like, think of a kaleidoscope. And we're getting near the, the meaning of the manifold wisdom of God. We are only going to show the, the world the fullness of who God is together. In his book, Heart Fire, Johannes talks about he and his wife visiting Belfast, and where disunity is still rife, the signs of um, disunity are everywhere still. And then visiting the ruins of Bangor Abbey, just outside of Belfast, which was a monastic community that prayed 24-7, 365 for 200 years, and had a powerful um, impact on Europe during its darkest years. And at the end of, end of talking about these, the contrast of these two visits, he says, um, if I can get the right, the right place here. Where, if not in praying together, can fraternal reconciliation begin? 
Again, anyone who really prays will find that what is important to Jesus will become important to us. Anyone who really prays will pray for that which Jesus prays. In the night before his death, Jesus asked the Father for unity among his disciples. He's still praying for that today. May his prayer be echoed in ours day and night. The question of Christian unity is too serious, its history too blood-drenched, to leave it to those who simply debate it at conference tables. Only in praying together will we find the power to overcome the divisions in our hearts. The barred shop windows in Belfast and the ruins of Bangor that weep in the rain tell of this. Jesus is monogamous and he only has one bride. Although her visible unity is broken, all who believe in Jesus belong to this bride. Loving the bridegroom should be accompanied by an ever-increasing respect for the bride whom he only chose once. On the 4th of September in 1859, Charles Fenney delivered a sermon called Prevailing Prayer in Glasgow. And at the end of that prayer meeting in Glasgow, he prayed this. I expect to see it, the great move of God, go over Scotland, break upon the continent, and shake it. Pray for it. Let the waters of eternal life roll. And let Christians all, loving and confiding in one another, give their hearts unitedly to the work. Do not, my brethren, grieve and quench the Holy Spirit by setting at naught your brethren. Be tolerant, be loving, united, faithful, active, prayerful, and persevering, and a wave of salvation will cover the land. And I guess my, my challenge, my invitation, mine, God's, I think, I hope, this morning to you guys is, will we let that prayer of Jesus become our prayer? And will we let it not only become our prayer, but will we let it transform our hearts? and push us into actually living out the answer to that prayer. So I'm just going to pray and then hand it back over. Jesus, would you give us your love for your bride? Would you press on our hearts, Jesus, the importance of that prayer the night you prayed, the, the, the one that you prayed the night before you died? Would you press on our hearts the importance of it still? And Holy Spirit, we welcome you. 
as we've looked at scripture this morning and we see how when we need help, just like Jesus promised us, you are there. So if we need help to pray, if we need your courage to step into our promised land, to step into the things that you are calling us to step into as your church, we know you are there to breathe your courage into us, to help us cross over our Jordans, to slay our giants. And so, Holy Spirit, this morning, would you call us, not just as individuals, but as your church, as your people, as your body, as your bride, into that place of prayer where we can receive your courage, your boldness, your wisdom to go out and make a difference in this world and to do it together so that the world might see the fullness of Jesus. In Jesus' name.